All right, so we are this morning, as you uh, can tell by the uh, screen there, going to discuss uh, the topic of the day of the Lord, the topic of the day of the Lord. Um, this is, uh, in some ways, an overlap of what we've been talking about the, in the last three messages as we've considered a theology of judgment. Uh, but this puts, a, in a sense, a period at the end of that sentence, or it at least captures one idea to complete that idea, uh, the idea of judgment, uh, as we come, particularly as we come into the unfolding of God's plans for the end of this age in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And so the day of the Lord, then, is a key concept in Scripture. It's a key concept in Scripture, and particularly in understanding eschatology or the last things, the things related to the last things of this uh, present age before the return of Christ. It's uh, not an uncommon uh, phrase in Scripture, the day of the Lord, although it also is referred to in other ways as well. The day of the Lord is a specific phrase used 18 times in the Old Testament. It's used four times specifically in the New Testament, but then it's referred to in a variety of nuanced ways uh, throughout Scripture. The, uh, the phrase on that day is used 208 times in the Old Testament, and then there's various phrases in the New Testament, the day of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Jesus Christ and so forth. So the point of that simply is to say that it is a, an important concept. It is a, a key idea. It is something that God wants us to understand as we think about, again, his plans for the end of this age. And as with many issues, particularly as we consider the last things and the things of eschatology, uh, as important as it is, there's also a variety of understandings of the day of the Lord and some of those events and their particulars. Uh, what is without question is, of course, the Lord's physical and bodily return to judge uh, the quick and the dead. To What is without this, uh, question is the ultimate accountability that all humanity has uh, before God, standing before the great white throne judgment. What is without question is that ultimately the end and the fullness of our salvation is going to be on a new heavens and a new earth where we will be with God forever in resurrected bodies where his glory dwells. The details in between there engenders a lot of discussion, and so it is with the day of the Lord. Uh, and particularly, the place it plays in God's plans for the wrapping up of this present age. Now, as with the concept of judgment, uh, the goal of this message in the next uh, you know, few minutes that we have is not to be comprehensive, nor could I be, nor exhaustive. It is very selective, the things that I'll talk about. There are a variety of aspects of the day of the Lord that we won't cover. For some who aren't familiar with the topic, uh, you won't know that we're skipping over them. For, for those of you who are more familiar with the topic, you, it'll be in your mind, I understand that. In other words, how does the day of the Lord, its relationship to key passages like like 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, to the rapture, to Matthew 24, and, and other kind of concepts, which we are not going to get into this morning. We will, however, deal with those issues more specifically as we walk through the text of Revelation. So we're not skipping over them, we're just not going to deal with them today. Some of them I will just briefly mention. Now, the goal of this morning is simply to introduce the concept very broadly to show its importance in understanding what God has revealed about the last days and his purposes for this world and how we as God's people should respond and be encouraged by these truths, humbled and also encouraged uh, by these truths. And so that is the goal. So what is the day of the Lord? What is the meaning of the phrase, the day of the Lord? 
Well, let's just consider the phrase itself. That idea of day, of course, is used literally most often in Scripture, but it's also used metaphorically in a variety of ways. And one of those ways is that the idea of a day is not limited to uh, one specific event, but is used to capture uh, a scope of events or a variety of events that all fall under one heading, one work, or one, one act of God. Let me give, just give you an example. So, for example, in Genesis 2.24, uh, this is coming, of course, after the account of God creating the heavens and the earth. So, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the six days of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the wrapping up also with the, the, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, a day of rest. And then he says this in Genesis 2.4. This is, the, it is going to bleed into another section. Uh, focusing on his creation of Adam and Eve, but he says this in 2.4. This is the account of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made heaven and earth. Uh, now we know those, that day took six days of actual creation and then the assignment of the seventh day as a day of rest here referred to simply as the day when the Lord created all of these things. Uh, just one other simple example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it. He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Which is then speaking of an age, an era, a time of opportunity. Now is the time before the judgment of God would come in which salvation is available to all men, to all who will run and seek refuge in Christ Jesus. So, so day there referring to a time of opportunity, uh, a time in which men may flee and run to Christ and know his salvation. And so that is the use of day uh, in the day of the Lord, it is referring to a distinct period of time marked by specific events. And then you have of the Lord, which would modify that in, in this way. It's a distinct period of time in which the Lord manifests his presence through mighty acts. It is a particular manifestation of the presence and of the power of God through mighty acts. Through mighty acts. One described it uh, in this way that it's used in the Bible for special interventions of God in human history. And that's often how it's described by a variety of writers. That special interventions of God, when God intervenes into the, the normal works of his providence in creation to work in a way that is significant and that displays his glory and that accomplishes his purposes. It is a reference then to the particular and powerful manifestation of God's presence, a special visitation, ultimately a vindication of his glory. That's at least uh, my attempt at some kind of summary. That it's a reference to the particular and powerful manifestation of God's presence, a special visitation, ultimately a vindication of his own glory, as are all things. Now, that being said, then, how are we to understand this day, this day of the Lord? Well, as I noted, there are a variety of ways of understanding it, and that variety of ways are going to relate to a variety of other questions that have to be asked, then, about this particular time. Uh, an example of such questions would be, is it exclusively a day or judgment, or does it include the idea of salvation? 
Is it only the day uh, where God will execute vengeance on his enemies? Or are we to think of that day as also encompassing times of restoration, times of blessing, times of salvation, and the fulfillment of his promises uh, to his people? That's one. Another related type of question would be, does it refer exclusively to a specific event? Is it that, that day, that, that moment? Uh, some would relegate it to the actual return, the physical uh, return of Christ, the second coming. Or does it refer to a time period, a, a series of events that are related to God's purposes uh, at the end of the age? And so... Uh, how one answers those questions will determine how one understands this day. Uh, we'll briefly address some of that as we go through here. Now, in the Old Testament, the imagery of the day or the day of the Lord or in other ways that that day is referred to, it often refers to specific and significant historical judgments either on the nation of Israel herself or on the nations and Israel's enemies. Now, there's a variety of examples. Let me give you just one. Uh, and that will come from its first usage in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5, uh, verse 18. Now, again, we're going to be looking at a few passages. We're not going to go to uh, any of them in depth. As I noted, this is going to be a broad overview. We'll do that as we continue to go through the book of Revelation. But here, let me note, in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, he says in verse 18, speaking to the nation of Israel, primarily, he says in verse 18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom and no brightness in it? Well, the first thing to observe here is that the people of God, here speaking of Israel as the covenant nation, understood that there was a particular day of reckoning of the Lord. Many, the ones, and particularly the ones whom he is addressing, thought of this day as a day of their deliverance. They were looking towards this day as they understood it as a day of being freed from the yoke of their enemies, of being brought into a place of God's blessing. And the great reversal through the message of the prophet is to say that you who are hoping for this to be a great day of blessing, you are, who are hoping that this is a day and a time of your salvation, in fact, are going to be greatly surprised. It's going to be a time of your judgment. And he gives this very striking language of saying it's a judgment you can't escape. If you escape a lion, one danger, you're only going to be met by another one. If you go home and you think there's safety and you lean on a wall for rest, you'll find it's only there with poisonous stakes. In other words, you can't escape. It's going to be a day which will be uh, one of judgment. And it will be one of judgment because of their rejection of God. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this or the initial fulfillment of this for Israel would be the destruction of Samaria by the king of Assyria in the 8th century BC when he comes in as, a, as an act of the judgment of God and he carries away the people into exile. And this is actually picked up in one other place in which this idea of the day is referred to and I just want to connect it here and it's in Isaiah chapter 10. You don't have to jump around with me if you don't want. I'll read these passages but... In Isaiah chapter 10, he says this. Uh, so many things to bring out here, but let me just highlight this point. 
he's, he's speaking to Israel, to, to, uh, they're speaking of God's uh, judgment on Israel and on Judah, and here specifically about his use of Assyria as an instrument of his judgment. The use of Assyria, whom he calls, calls, calls in verse 5, the rod of my anger. And he says to them in verse 3, Now what will you do in the day of punishment? In the day of punishment. In that period of time when I punish you for your sins and in the devastation which will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or to fall among the slain. He talks about, in verse 5 and following, how Assyria is going to be this instrument. And then he says in verse 11, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done into Samaria and her idols? And so there he's referring to this judgment that God was going to bring to his people for their disobedient, using the wicked nation of Assyria to utterly wipe out Samaria, carry them off in the 8th century to captivity. He would also use Assyria to wound Judah, although ultimately their judgment would come under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the, uh, the Babylonian king, through a period of time that ultimately would culminate in 587 with the destruction of Jerusalem in the most horrific way. Here then it is referred to as the day of punishment, and there is this historical reality of that day being brought to light and experienced by the people of God in a significant judgment. However, in most of the references to the day of the Lord, the historical judgment bleeds over into an anticipation of a greater future judgment. The judgment that includes Israel and all of the nations, not only in some near point of history, but in a future fulfillment that will be global and include all of the world. And this fits, and I would note here then, and we'll look at some of these, of course, this near and far aspect of prophecy. Sometimes when you, people who discuss prophecy speak of this idea of telescoping. And that means when you read the prophets, sometimes multiple events are talked about in, in the same breath, as it were. And in these multiple events have fulfillments as the history of the world and God's plans unfold. And ultimately culminating in a, in a final expression of it. But having many... Uh, anticipatory expressions before that actual culminating experience comes about. So there is very often in prophecy then a near fulfillment which anticipates a far fulfillment. Now there's, there's many ways that works out but we're going to look at that as it relates to this day of the Lord. Now as noted in our message on judgment, our message on judgments if you remember it was more of just a comment that every judgment of the Lord, in one sense, in a big picture sense, is an anticipation of the final judgment. Every judgment of the Lord is a, is a reminder that the world is still under sin. That the world is groaning. That we are groaning. That there is a world yet standing in opposition to God. And this opposition will have to receive a day of reckoning by God and judgment of God. So there is a sense in which... Everything that is a judgment of God and an effect of sin is, is anticipating and reminding us of that great day. But it finds a particular expression in how the prophets talk about this particular day and the day of the Lord. One captured this idea in this statement, which hopefully is a helpful summary. He says this, Semitic thought, thought, thought customarily designated important events with day, the, the, 
the identification of day. These could be decisive events in history or random events, and here's the key, with symbolic value. With symbolic value. In other words, they pointed to something else. They were illustrations of something else. Now, let's just consider uh, one example of this. Well, actually, before we do, let me make this new. That these future judgments that were anticipated by the near judgments uh, are also understood in a variety of ways. Um, and as I noted before, how we answer those questions is going to be how we, uh, how we answer certain questions about the day of the Lord will be how we understand it. So one of those is this. Is he referring to a period, to, to multiple events, to a, to a period of time in which judgments will come? Is he referring to a specific time? And particularly, is he referring specifically to the physical and bodily return of Christ? Is he referring or is he uh, taking into account all of the tribulation or the tribulation and the millennial kingdom? Is he referring to the judgment that's going to come in Revelation 19 and the one that comes in Revelation chapter 20? What what is included uh, in this day? Well, without going into all of the details, I will state uh, what I think is the best way to understand this. And that is to see the day as referring to both of those aspects, to both sometimes a broad sense, a look at the judgment of God in all of its details, and in a narrow sense, a very specific sense that culminates in the return of Christ and the judgment uh, that Christ brings. Well, let's look at then now some passages uh, that relate to that. Uh, In the broad sense, it refers to a distinct period of judgment of God upon the unbelieving and rebellious nations of the earth. Uh, Let's look at a couple of passages together. The first I want to point you to is in Isaiah. And actually, we're going to look at several passages in Isaiah in which uh, this this is talked about. Isaiah chapter 2 is one key passage Now, in Isaiah, you might remember, he begins opening Isaiah essentially in a courtroom scene in which he's bringing indictments against his people for their sin. And he's confronting them for carrying out religious functions while in their heart rejecting righteousness, the righteousness of the covenant. In other words, they're living in sin while thinking that they are in God's favor because of their continuance of the formalities of their religion, of the cultic expressions of their religion, the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and all of those kind of things. And God is confronting them and telling them, no, uh, I hate those things actually when it's not attended with a heart of true worship and a life that follows the ways of God. And so he calls them to repentance. And he's telling them in this calling to repentance that there is going to be a judgment to come and there is also going to be a salvation to come after that judgment. There's going to be a chastening for your sin, but after that chastening is going to become a restoration. But it's going to follow a massive destruction that will extend far beyond just the sin of Israel to all of the nations. Now, in Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to come back to some of these to look at one other aspect of it later. But in Isaiah chapter 2, he identifies this day, really beginning in verse 8, he talks about their land is filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, the fingers they've made, that which their fingers have made. The common man has been humbled. 
The man of importance has been abased. Do not forgive them. He talks about entering the rock and hiding from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. And then he sets up this description by acknowledging the point of this coming judgment. And he says in verse 11, The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day or in that day. That day in which the judgment of God is coming in which he will humble man and exalt his own name. And so he describes that in verse 12. And in some of these passages, we won't read all of them in their fullness, but some we will just to give a sense of it. He says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it'll be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up. And he gives these physical descriptions that give a picture of the fullness and the devastation uh, that will come. He says in verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols will completely vanish, men will go into caves, and they'll hide in holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. When he arises, listen, to make the earth tremble. And that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and idols of gold and so forth, what they made for themselves to worship. He says in verse 21, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. And while the overall immediate message of Isaiah to the nation of Israel is that there is a humbling which is coming to the nation because of your rejection of covenant faithfulness, rejection of your God. And so destruction is going to come. The temple is going to be destroyed. You cannot escape it. But there is a greater judgment which is coming on the world and the earth of all who stand in line and exhibit that kind of pride and rejection of God. It is a day coming in which all of the earth will tremble. All of the men will hide. All that is exalted before the Lord will be abased and will be humbled. He expands on this in Isaiah chapter 13. Speaking of a day, this day that is coming. And again, here we're looking at the judgment aspect. Any prophecies in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Isaiah, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw. And he talks about this judgment that is going to come. It is a judgment that is going to come. Uh, upon Israel through the instrument of Babylon and ultimately a judgment that will come later on Babylon herself. But then after mentioning and preparing them for this judgment, which in verse 5 he says, they're coming from a far country and from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. And that is the judgment that he is going to bring upon Judah through Babylon. But then he says, and he looks to something else in verse 6. Wait, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. It will be pictured in this description of what will happen when God brings his just anger against the land of Judah and the temple particularly. He says that every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces, their faces aflame. Verse 9, 
He again mentions this day of the Lord, but now he expands it to something that exceeds beyond just the destruction of Jerusalem. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it, which is part of his purpose. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. And thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. In other words, few will survive this. I'll make the heavens tremble, he says in verse 13. The earth will be shaken from its place in the fury of the Lord of the host in the day of his anger. And then he goes on. In other words, the judgment that's going to come upon you is going to be deep, it's going to be swift, it's going to cause terror, but it's only an anticipation of the judgment that will come upon all who stand in the position of rebellion against God. Let me give you one more. Isaiah 24. Again, he talks about this day that's going to extend far beyond any temporal judgment or, in, in, or temporary judgment there in history to Israel that's going to include all that rebel against him. He says in verse 24, The Lord lays the earth waste. He devastates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants. People will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, and so forth. The earth will be, in other words, it will equally come upon all. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers, and the world fades and withers. The exalted of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse devours the earth, and those who live on it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned. And few men are left. You can hear echoes of 2 Peter 3. It is a desolation that is coming. It is a desolation, again, as he's mixing these realities in the, real, in the, in the, the destruction that's going to come upon Jerusalem as well. Verse 12, desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruins. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples and the shaking as the shaking of an olive tree. The gleanings of the grape is over and so forth. This judgment is going to come. It will be comprehensive. He says, again, in verse 19, the earth is broken, or verse 18, it will be that he who flees to the reported disaster will fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare, for the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. You can hear that same idea that we read in Amos chapter 5. There's no escape. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. It totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. So it is. It will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings on the earth of the earth on, on the earth. They will be gathered together and they will be judged. After many days, they will be punished, and so on. It is then a day of judgment. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of judgment that exceeds far beyond 
the borders of Israel or the borders of Jerusalem and the city of David, and it encompasses all of the rebellion of men. One last one. For the day of the Lord is coming in Joel chapter 2. It's coming, surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn spread over the mountains. So there is great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. He says in verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely the camp is very great, for the strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? What is the point of that? It's simply this, to recognize, without going through every reference, that the day of the Lord here is a day that is extending far beyond the judgment that will come upon his people because of their sin and their rejection of the covenant, it will extend out beyond them, even though that stands symbolically, as we noted before, as the kind of devastation that will come, the kind of fear that this day will bring. But it extends beyond them and says there is none on the face of the earth, none who indwell God's creation, who are polluting it with sin and transgression, who will escape this great day. This day that is coming. This is a broad sense of the day of the Lord. Let me give you just one other passage and make a connection. In Malachi chapter 4, he says this. And here we start moving towards the narrow sense. At least broadly so. He says in chapter 4 of Malachi, remember Malachi is the last writing prophet to Israel before the coming of the Lord. And he says this, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now this is interesting. Because as soon as we read that, we know, at least from the few passages that we read, that they understood the great and the terrible day of the Lord was a day of judgment that God was bringing upon all of humanity, upon all of the earth, weighed down with the transgression of men and the corruption of ungodly men. And yet here, it is anticipated to be preceded by Elijah. Elijah, great prophet of the Old Testament. A time of restoration of relationships. Here are the hearts of the fathers to their children and children to their fathers. So that he will not come and smite them with a curse. Now if you're familiar with scripture, as many if not all of us are, enough to remember that what do you think of when you hear that? Well, we think of John the Baptist. We think of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 when that great announcement was made to Zechariah and his wife. And part of this announcement of this child who's going to be born to them uh, by the angel was this. In verse 17 of Luke chapter 1, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him, speaking of John the Baptist, him before him being Christ, the Messiah, in the spirit 
and a power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel says John the Baptist is going to come in fulfillment of this prophecy in the spirit and the power of Elijah. It's not a resurrected Elijah. It's not a reincarnate Elijah. It's not Elijah coming back in Elijah's body or a new body for Elijah. It is Elijah who stands as a bold and significant prophet in the history of Israel that John the Baptist in a similar way will bear the marks of that bold proclamation of the purposes of God. Here, however, to announce the Messiah and to prepare the way of the Messiah to bring salvation to the nation. Even though, interestingly, Malachi mentioned that it was the coming before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Jesus affirms this identification of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. Again, we're just going to look at this broadly. I'm going to move us into this narrow aspect. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. This is John the Baptist. If you remember, Matthew 11 was doubting, you know, are you the one? And Jesus says, you know, tell him what you saw. And he healed and he did other signs of the Messiah. And he says, go back and report what you've seen to John the Baptist. And then he gives uh, this account of John the Baptist and his significance. And he marks him out as one who is the greatest among, born among women. But he says, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And essentially he's saying, John is the last of the Old Testament prophets who stands in the most significant place of all of the prophets of Israel in that he is at the transition between the Old Covenant and this coming and the introduction of the Messiah to bring in the New Covenant. He stands as the most significant. It doesn't mean he was more holy or more obedient or anything like that. It means he holds a particularly special place of greatness in the prophetic stream, here announcing the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says this of him, of uh, John the Baptist. He refers to him as coming in the power of Elijah, that he was, in fact, Elijah who was to come. And so he said to them, they asked him, or he says when he talks about him, from the days in verse 12 of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violent, violent men take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He is the one. He was the one who came to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to the fathers. But interestingly, it doesn't stay there. He says this in Matthew chapter 17. He says, and this is the Mount of Transfiguration. He says to his disciples, if you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John, his brother. They went to a high mountain. They saw the Lord transfigured before them. And then they saw the Lord transfigured before them, speaking to, verse 3, Moses and Elijah, who appeared to them, and they were talking with Jesus. They were talking with him. Of course, Peter makes his characteristically, um, well, you could say stupid statement, and it was, but he was caught up in the moment. And he's, you know, wanting to make tabernacles, and then the Lord reminds him, the Father, that don't, 
don't, uh, don't confuse the significance of my son. That's actually a blasphemous statement, although he didn't realize it. But this is my beloved son, he says, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then he says this, however, in verse 11. And he answered and he said, oh, verse 10. His disciples asked him, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That is, in the future. Verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished, and so the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Now there's a lot there. Let me just make one simple observation. While there is possible to say that the future anticipation of Elijah here is simply a way to emphasize this prophetic fulfillment of Elijah and his, or uh, John the Baptist and his ministry that he has uh, completed and that the fruit of that will come later. However, that doesn't seem to best fit his words here. The anticipation here is that, yes, that prophecy was fulfilled, but there's more yet to come. There's still the restoration to come. The restoration hasn't come. And there we're still left with Malachi chapter 4 who says, however, this is going to come before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. So how will we understand that? Let me make at least this suggestion. And we're going to get there down the road. It is possible to understand the fulfillment of this coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord as one of the two witnesses that are in Revelation chapter 11. Those who are going to come and to witness to the purposes of God and be killed by the world and to be put to death only to rise miraculously before all of the world to see. That would fit in that it is this final culminating appearance of this great prophetic person who will come in anticipation of this great and terrible day of the Lord. So there is then this narrowing down in one sense of this great and terrible day to the presence of the Messiah, to the presence of the Messiah coming the first time to announce salvation, but then coming the second time to bring about judgment and what is identified as this day of the Lord. And so there's an, a narrow sense in which this time and this period of destruction then is related specifically to the presence of the Messiah. Now on this, let me just give a couple of passages. And then we're going to fill out another aspect quickly. I'm going to go quickly. In verse Zechariah chapter 14, he says this. Now Zechariah 14, and again I am being selective here. Uh, for time's sake, but in Zechariah chapter 14 is anticipating this future, future time. He says, behold, a day is coming for the Lord. Again, just another way to rephrase that day of the Lord idea. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And listen in verse 2. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, the half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations is when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, 
In that day, this particular day, this day of judgment, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from its east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee by the valley of, flee by the valley of my mountains. And he goes on and he says at the end of verse 5, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. There will be no light, luminaries dwindle. It will be, verse 7, a unique day. Not like any other judgment, not like any other day. This is where God himself is coming to physically be present as a means of judgment. And it's also a day known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Anticipating something glorious and here a restoration. In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem and so forth. In verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all of the earth. And then he goes on to describe these incredible new conditions that will come about after that. The point here is that this day is associated with the particular presence of God. It's a particular time of judgment. It's a particular time of judgment that is focused on the land of Jerusalem, the land of Judea. It is a time in which God will judge not not Israel in this case, but in which he particularly will judge the nations that are rallied against Israel, that are rallied against them. And so we have with this day and this association of the day in the New Testament, and again, we're going to have to be very, very selective and quick, but with this coming of the Lord, with this coming of the Lord, let me give you just a few passages here. Actually, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to make mention briefly of it here, but in, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he talks about this judgment that's going to come, uh, that it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, verse 6, and to give you relief who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. In other words, this day is coming and this day is associated specifically with the manifestation of the Lord's righteous vindication against his enemies and against those who are enemies and persecutors of his people. He then mentions this day again in chapter 2. And again, we're going to come back to this one in detail when we go through Revelation. But he says in verse 2, now he's writing to this Thessalonica church because they understood about this day. They, they were aware of it because of the ministry of Paul. And yet, there were some false letters and people coming in and saying that in verse, the end of verse 2, to the, the effect of these letters was that the day of the Lord had already come. It had already come. But he says, let no one deceive you, for it, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself, and so forth. 
And so essentially, just in short, he's saying here that don't worry, you're not in this day because those events that mark the reality of this day are not happening and you're not going to be a part of them. And so therefore you're not worried, you shouldn't worry that you're in this day because it hasn't come yet. And this day is going to come and it will be noted by particularly the man of lawlessness and these particular future coming judgments of God and the turning away from any sense of restraint and wickedness and in sin. And when he says then that he who is restraining him is taken out of the way. And so there is this day that is coming and it will be marked by and anticipated by these incredible events of a great act of rebellion against God, a great removal of any restraint on human sin, and the arise of this evil one and this wicked one who will commit the greatest atrocities and blasphemies against God. And yet it will be met this day, and it will be marked by the revealing of Christ and His glory and His judgment that is to come. Now, let me just jump ahead to a a few other points here. Let me note here, however, back up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that this day also is going to come, and it's going to come as a thief in the night. Now, as to the time and the epochs, he says, Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains in a woman with child, and they will not escape. And then he goes on, he says, But you, brethren, are not in the darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. In other words, who is going to be the recipients of the judgment of that day? Those who are in darkness, not those who are in the light. Not those who are of the day. Not those who belong to God. At the time that this day comes, those will not be a part of it. It will not come uh, like a thief to them because they will not be recipients of this judgment of this day, this day of God. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night, in verse 5, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us be alert and sober. Since we are of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, the day there is not the day of judgment, but saying the day is those who walk in the light, those who are of the truth, and those who belong to God. So this day of the Lord then, to sum that up in brief, is primarily understood as a time of destruction in an ultimate sense in which judgment will come upon all of the world, all of the inhabitants of the world who are unredeemed, who are burdened with the reality of sin. This day will ultimately come with the destruction of all that stands in rebellion to God. It will come and culminate in this particular physical appearance of God in the person of Christ in which he will bring a finality to his kingdom purposes in this age and that is by removing all that is wicked from it and establishing it for his people. So this is this day that is coming Uh, One made this comment, though judgment is a major emphasis of the day of the Lord, the goal of the day of the Lord is not judgment, but bringing in of the messianic kingdom. So it is judgment, 
This day is judgment, but the ultimate purpose of this day is to prepare God's fulfillment of his promises to his people in redemption and restoration. It is marked continually then by being followed by a time of flourishing and of restoration. I wish we could spend more time. Maybe you don't. (laughs) But let me at least give these passages. And and then we're going to come into the Lord's table. And again, like I said, this is just a very broad picture. And then I'll wrap it up with a verse you're probably thinking of. As we noted the the destruction that was to come in Isaiah chapter 24, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 24, yes. uh, It's followed immediately by a time of restoration and a time of great glory that is to come. He says, therefore to them, uh, in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, most likely referring to death, and even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. And he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it shall be said... In that day, behold, this is our God whom we have waited for, waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The judgment that is to come upon the earth is the salvation of his people. He says this, putting it in a succinct way in Isaiah 35. Encourage the exhausted in verse 3 and verse 4. And strengthen the feeble and say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, feel not, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. He will come with vengeance upon his enemies and salvation for his people. Destruction upon the earth and that stands in opposition to him. And blessing and restoration and flourishing for those who belong to him. So this day is coming to fulfill the purposes of God. And again, we won't look at all of these, but that's throughout the New Testament as well, where the people of God, the church, we are told to look for and hasten and hasten towards the day of Christ Jesus, the day of the revelation of Christ Jesus, the day of Christ, in many ways that it's talked about. So now, why is this important for us to understand? One is because it is a major theme in Scripture. And again, there's much more to be said that we'll talk about as we go on. But here's what I want to encourage us as we come into the table. Uh, Just in this way, and we'll get to Revelation, back to the text of Revelation next week. But one is to remind us of this. And and this, again, is just extending part of what we talked about uh, under the theology of judgment, that God is absolutely sovereign. That's, That's really one of the main points. God is absolutely sovereign. He is ruling his creation. And this is easy to forget if we spend the bulk of our time watching and reading about politics and cultural events, about wokeism, about who has DEI, uh, Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro and go down the list, which all have a helpful role to play in general. But not the Christian should not be consumed with that mindset. We should be consumed with the mindset that a day is coming in which the Lord will execute his vengeance and bring our salvation, and that's the day that we're looking forward to. Not the next election, as important as all those things are, 
not the next cultural movement and victory, as important as all those things are in their place, but to the Lord bringing victory for his people, the Lord returning for his people, and so we should live lives consistent with that. The day of the Lord, then, is a reminder that God will fulfill all of his purposes in Christ. This is the promise. If we want a summary of a biblical worldview, although it would be this. He is according to the kind intention of his will, which he purposed in Christ, uh, working all things with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. That's our worldview. And that is a part and essential to our understanding the issue of the day of the Lord. Secondly, very briefly, we need to know that God will vindicate his name and the people who are called by his name. And we need this because, and we need to hold on to this reality because we live in a world that is, is and is growing more and more so in our, in our context here, extremely arrogant. Extremely arrogant and arrogant against the truth. Arrogant against reality itself. Arrogant against any sense of virtue or being held to any transcendent accountability outside of self and purposes. And who is going to bear the brunt of that? Christians. Eventually, in some way, we don't know what God has purposed for us. And certainly our brethren around the world are. But we need that because it's easy to get dismayed. It's easy to get discouraged. And it's easy to get thrown off track when we see the kind of arrogant flourishing and rejection of God and of plain reality. And the psalmist felt that. I won't go there. But Psalm 13, 2, Psalm 35, 17, and others. How long, O Lord, will you wait while the arrogant persecute me, while my enemies rise up against me, while I am held and to, the, to bear the brunt of their lies and their deception and their hatred of you? How long, O Lord? How long? How long will we have to endure this? How long will we have to put up with this? How long will we have to deal with this rejection of your truth and this blasphemy of your name? And the answer, one among many, is when God has a day of reckoning, God will vindicate his name, God will vindicate his people, God will vindicate his truth, and he will bring your salvation. And so what is the answer? Persevere, for the one who overcomes will inherit the kingdom of God. And so that kingdom is reminded, or we are reminded of that kingdom in these elements. So let's pray and the men will hand them out. And Father, thank you for these reminders of your sovereignty, your control over heaven and earth. And that you have a day, you have a, a day of reckoning. You have a day which is a day where you will be exalted and the pride of man will be humbled. You have a day in which the enemies of your people will be removed from the earth and your blessing and your favor and the fulfillment of your promises will be known and experienced and delighted in. And the greatest delight of all of that is that you will be present and that sin will be forever removed. And so, Lord, we anticipate this day. We anticipate it. Help us to be encouraged Help us to be faithful, help us to be hopeful, and help us to be certain that all that you have said, you will do. And remind us, even as we come to the table now, 
of these great and glorious realities which are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so we come in faith, we come to be encouraged, we come to live our lives to your glory. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.